0: a machine in dye shop that on uh, late uh, 4th of July one evening uh, burned to the ground. Someone had shot off a bottle rocket and it landed in the pine straw around the building. And in moments the whole thing was engulfed and in flames and burnt to the ground rather quickly. He had renewed his insurance but his insurance agent had failed to file for him. And so he had to enter into legal proceedings with an attorney to get the company to pay. Fortunately, those of you in the insurance industry know about E&O insurance. It's insurance for uh, insurance agents when they make a mistake. And so he was covered, but he had to go through all the legal proceedings and go through essentially some arbitration, I believe it was, to have this paid back. But that didn't take for a year. It took him a whole year for his insurance claim to come in for him to be paid by his company but in the meantime he kept all seven of his men on the payroll and he had a man one time that came to him who said at some point it's going to get tough for you when it does call me and after about eight months he had to call this friend in the community and the man came by with a hearty sack filled with fifty thousand dollars just gave it to him and said, pay it back when you can. There was no contract. There were no witnesses but the two of them. And in time, Mike was able to pay back all $50,000. In fact, without income, Mike continued to tithe. And we told him, stop it. You don't have any income. He kept all of his men on the payroll as they cleaned up the shop and started rebuilding uh, the new shop in its place. But Mike was someone who reflected the character of God. He, ke- he made a promise and he kept it to his employees and to his friend, and Mike did it with his God as well. That is much of the spirit behind this text in verse number 13, and verse number 14. Here the apostle Paul says that the Holy Spirit keeps the promises of God to the honor and glory of Jesus Christ. Beginning in verse number 13, he says, In him, speaking of Christ, you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Before we get into the text of the message, the body of the message, I want to share some basic facts with you about the Holy Spirit. One is this, the Holy Spirit is a person in the Trinity. He's not a force or merely a power, but he is a person, and he's not lesser than God. He is God himself. In Acts chapter 5, verses 1-11, through 11, Peter said to Ananias and Sapphira, you're lying to God, then he says you're lying to the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.30 says the Holy Spirit can can be grieved by sin. And so he's a person. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says he can be quenched like a person as well. And then a second fact, the Holy Spirit resides in all believers at salvation. Acts 2.38 promises that. And Romans 8.9 says that if we do not have the Spirit of God, we do not belong to Jesus Christ. The third fact is the Holy Spirit is the prosecutor and the attorney general of the kingdom of God. Every kingdom has an attorney general and has a prosecutor. And in this day, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. He brings men and women to trial for their sin, cross-examines them, convicts them of it, and levels the sentence against them. And Jesus said he would do that in John chapter 16, verse 8. And then the Holy Spirit treasures and cherishes the glory of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit, Jesus said in John 16, would, would take of Jesus and glorify and exalt him. The Holy Spirit, I don't believe, enjoys being the front person in the Trinity. I believe he likes to be the sustaining, behind-the-scenes person to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. He is Christocentric. He is focused on Christ. He exalts the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul explained the work of the Holy Spirit is to make much of Jesus Christ. And we can better praise him when we understand what he does Jesus Christ. Well, what does he do? Well, one, the Holy Spirit empowers the believer's witness for Christ. In this day, so many are worried about method and technique and coming at non-Christians from an angle that we really forget and overlook what is vital and necessary and sharing the gospel of Christ in our world. Uh, Jesus made this very clear in John 16, 8, that the Holy Spirit would come and convict. In Acts four thirty one, it explains the apostles were so effective because they were filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And then Paul would say in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. In, in verse 13, Paul really abbreviates this process of bringing someone to the Lord. It it is abbreviated in many ways. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth and then the Holy Spirit sealed you. What, What Paul covers in other places is that the Holy Spirit, through our voice and our verbalization of the saving gospel of Christ, confronts unbelievers with great power, turns their heart to the Lord, they repent and they believe, and then they are saved and then he seals them. And that is what is implied in this text. You you may ask the question, how can I penetrate unbelief? How can I penetrate stubbornness? What can I do? How can I penetrate darkness? And I've got good news for you. You don't. He does. He is the supernatural power that ignites gospel power when you share the verbal gospel And so many are looking then for a sign that the Holy Spirit is working with a non-Christian. And they're looking for some kind of physical reaction, some kind of emotional reaction. I've got news for you. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And what that means is, is that the sign that God is working with a non-Christian to convert that non-Christian to Christ is that someone is sharing the gospel. That's the sign. So when you verbally share the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have the power of the Holy Spirit, no matter what you see, no matter what you witness in the non-Christian. So here's the point. If you want the power of the Holy Spirit, share the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 3 defines it very well, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised from the dead according to the scriptures. And then he appeared... And Paul later says, I trusted him as Lord and as Savior. That is the simple saving message of Christ. You say, well, that's too simple. Well, if you shared something more complicated, you could get the glory. But in saving people with the simple gospel of Christ, Jesus alone gets the glory. And that is much the point. So the Holy Spirit makes much of Christ's gospel. And that's why we share this every time we open the Bible here in this place. It is extremely important to God that you come to know Christ. So much so, He executed His only Son at the cross and raised Him from the dead. And it now offers, if you'll reject what keeps you from Christ and following Him, and if you'll trust only the death and resurrection of Christ, He will save. In other words, He will cancel the debt of your sin against you eternally and permanently and instantaneously here today. And so at the end of the message today, we'll give you the opportunity to meet the Lord and to come to Christ. So the Holy Spirit empowers the believer's witness about Christ. But there's a second thing. The Holy Spirit seals the believer's position in Christ. He seals the believer's position in Christ. Paul makes much of this in verse 13. He says, in whom, or in Christ, in the middle of verse 13, in Christ also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, this word here, sealed, is a very interesting word and a very uh, profitable study. A seal in the first century is something everyone was familiar with, much like you are familiar with a signature. And that's what a seal served as, something like a signature. It was usually soft wax that had a... uh, some kind of design impressed into it. This design was usually found on a ring. Kings and government administrators and private citizens had these kinds of things. And so they would verify the worthiness and the authenticity of a document or a letter of some kind by pouring soft wax on it and then taking this ring and impressing on it the image of their ring. And it served in four different ways, much like a signature. One, it uh, was a seal... Uh, that indicated security. and This is what uh, King Darius did when he sealed Daniel in the lion's den to make sure no one would get in to secure the den. He sealed it with this ring, and that indicated don't mess with this place, leave Daniel there, and he trusted the Lord would take care of him. Well, with the Holy Spirit in your life, after you trust Christ and the, His gospel, With the Holy Spirit in your life, the presence of the Holy Spirit announces to the world, leave this child of God alone. He belongs to me. And so there is enormous eternal security found in the presence of the Holy Spirit. But the seal also indicated authenticity, much like your your signature. The image varied from person to person. And it identified the person who would send the letter, who would seal a document. And again, it is much like your signature. The presence of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life is a mark of authenticity that you really belong to the Lord. And when you come to Christ, the Holy Spirit comes into your life and indicates to heaven and earth that you really belong to Jesus Christ. In other words, you are an authentic child of God if and only if you have the Holy Spirit. And then a third thing that this seal did is that it indicated property. People would uh, seal their property property. In fact, in the first century, they would use seals of one kind or another to brand cattle. Uh, I received a rifle from my grandfather uh, in the last year through my father, and it had his insurance identification number on it, engraved into it. I wish he hadn't have done that. He marred it, but it indicated his, uh, uh, his ownership of that particular rifle, and he had that filed away with his, uh, with his insurance. Well, The truth is is that when uh, God owns a person by repentance and faith in the gospel of Christ, the Holy Spirit indicates that that person belongs to God. The presence of the Holy Spirit means we are the property of Almighty God. But then a seal also indicated authority. In other words, there were oftentimes letters and documents and edicts that were sent throughout the world that uh, a king or government official would indicate Uh, had to be implemented by his authority. That's what happened in Esther chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. The king sent an edict throughout the empire that the Jews could protect themselves. And this would be on official documents. Well, when you come to Jesus Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit, and then you have divine authority to enter into the throne room of God and to approach Him and to make use of all the resources of heaven. And so when a sinner trusts Jesus Christ as Savior, the Holy Spirit attaches that believer to Christ and seals that believer forever into the body of Christ. Now, I cannot guarantee you that you will never suffer loss. I cannot guarantee you that you will not suffer loss in relationships, in wealth or investments, freedoms, your health, your mind even. I can't guarantee that. But I can tell you, according to the Word of God, If you come to Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit will seal you, and that is a walk in relationship you can never, ever lose, either through satanic attack or human frailty or any kind of reneging of the promise of God by God the Father. He'll never do it. You'll be eternally secure in Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit makes much of this promise. So the Holy Spirit is the power, and the Holy Spirit is the seal. But there's a third thing. The Holy Spirit guarantees the believer's inheritance with Christ. And there's some interesting words here in verse number 14. He says, The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. There are three words here I want to concentrate on for just a moment. One is guarantee. This oftentimes Is translated in some other translations as earnest or deposit or down payment. That's exactly how it was used in the first century. And so the Holy Spirit then is God's deposit, down payment, indicating there is more to come. And that's the next uh, concept of inheritance. The Holy Spirit gives us an inheritance and guarantees the inheritance. In other words, the Holy Spirit is the first installment from God indicating there is more like the Holy Spirit to come on the other side. And that leads us to a third word, and that is redemption. Now, redemption is a wide and vast term in the New Testament. You can speak of it in past tense. If you've come to Christ as Savior, I was redeemed. You can speak of it in the present tense. God is in the process of redeeming and reclaiming more and more of me. But then we can speak of redemption also in the future tense. And that is, one day Christ will return, either in our death or in a second coming, with resurrection or with a second coming in glory, and claim all the earth for His own, that He purchased at Calvary's cross when He died for our sins. And so the Holy Spirit guarantees then that when Christ does come, either in death or resurrection or in His second coming, that he indeed will give us the inheritance of Christ. Now that comes across as a stunning fact to many people. Some people cannot imagine a God that generous. I've got good news for you. The God who gives us Jesus Christ gives with him his inheritance. Jesus Christ is, uh, is uh, on tap to receive a marvelous and great inheritance when he comes again. It's a marvelous thing. And the scripture says in Romans 8, 17, that we, those of us who know Christ as Savior, indicated by the presence of the Holy Spirit, will be co-heirs with Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus Christ graciously and abundantly and lavishly shares the inheritance He has with the children of God. Revelation 21 says, in fact, we shall reign with Him. In other words, those who belong to the Lord in that day will have the opportunity to work in the royal administration of Jesus Christ with authority and with his inheritance is what the Bible teaches. Ladies and gentlemen, this world offers an awful lot that quite frankly is profoundly disappointing. But God wants you to be assured that there is an inheritance that Christ himself will receive laid up for the children of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit is merely the first installment of that inheritance. Now, just imagine that. Now, if you've not walked with the Lord very long, this might be difficult. If you don't know Christ as Savior, it will be nearly impossible. But if you've walked with the Lord for any length of time, let me ask you a few questions. If the Holy Spirit represents God's first installment and payment on the glories to come, what is the full payment like? I could die now. Don't get any ideas. But, um, and even if there were no heaven, and my existence ended in the grave, what I've experienced of the Lord Jesus by the Holy Spirit has been enough for me. The love and the floods of forgiveness. And the cascades of grace and the torrents of mercy that have come my way in these years that I've known the Lord Jesus have satisfied my soul. All that thrills my soul is Jesus. He is life to me and the fairest of 10,000 in my blessed Lord. I see something I have to repeat back to the Lord over and over again just to get it off my heart. If I keep much of this to myself, sometimes I fear I'll explode. And that is merely the first installment. Can you imagine what the full payment is like? If, if the love that we have now is merely the first installment, what will it, the love be like at the full payment? If the glory of God we've witnessed it now has been merely the first installment, what shall it be like when it comes in its full measure? If the grace and if the mercy and the kindness... And and the momentary glimpses of his face are merely the first installment. What will the full measure be like? I can only imagine. One of my favorite things to do when I was a kid at my grandmother's house is if she was making spaghetti, was to go by and take a wooden spoon and sample it. Wipe it off of my britches and put it back on the counter. Do, do you know that what you have experienced of the Holy Spirit in this life is merely a spoonful? There's a feast that will never end that is coming for the child of God. The, the second question I want to ask is based upon the notion that the Holy Spirit is God's depositor down payment. If God were to renege on this promise and somehow allow you to lose your forgiveness and grace and salvation, what would happen to the Holy Spirit? If you make a deposit and don't come through with other payments, what what happens to your deposit? You lose your deposit. The Holy Spirit is God's deposit on future salvation. Beloved, one of the reasons I believe firmly that a child of God can never be lost again, but is always saved, is this right here. If a child of God could lose salvation, God would cease to be God because He would lose the Holy Spirit as His deposit. These words are intentionally selected here. Now, some may say and complain, well, what about all those Christians who walked down an aisle and walk through a baptistry and never lived a day for Christ, lived every day for the devil? And my response is, you don't know any Christians like that. You know some hypocrites, and you may know some who made a false profession of faith. But genuine Christians have the presence of the Holy Spirit, and He changes their lives. You can't help it. I'll elaborate on that in just a moment. But the truth is, is that that surprises many people. It reminds me of what Vance Hapner said. He said, most Christians today are so subnormal that if one of them became normal, we'd all think he's abnormal. The standard of New Testament Christianity is much higher than what we've oftentimes supposed. When Christ comes into a life, he begins the irresistible process of shaping someone more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. And if that irresistible grace in force is not in the life of a believer, that believer has very good reason and cause to question the genuineness of his or her faith in Christ. And so the standard is very, very high for New Testament Christians. But you have to understand, please don't say, well, I'm, I'm going to try better. That's not it. You don't try more, you trust more. And faith is what leads you to change because the Holy Spirit performs it in your heart and life. So the Spirit makes much of Christ's inheritance and it's guaranteed to us. Now, I want to ask a third question here is, and this this is it. Does the Holy Spirit live in me? Let me give you several indicators to make this clear. Uh, And I'll start with the letter A. A, if the Holy Spirit lives in you, you have assurance of salvation. Romans chapter 8, verse 16 says, The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. You do not need to search necessarily for a pastor, staff member, or a committed Christian to assure you that you know the Lord. Now, we'll help you, and there's a way to do that. But that's not always necessary. The ultimate witness to the reality of your salvation is the Holy Spirit himself. The Holy Spirit communicates with the believer when the believer is a genuine child of God and gives that believer the assurance that he or she really knows the Lord. Letter B, you have a battle against sinful desires. Galatians 5.17 says the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit wars against the flesh. In other words, you don't merely succumb and give in to sinful temptations. You may do that, but there is first a battle that ensues. There's a holy conflagration. There is some resistance in your heart towards yielding to temptation. You you may do that at times. Understand that. We need daily grace from God. But at the very least, there is a war in heart and in soul. Uh, Letter C. There is a chastening from God when we do wrong. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 through 8. Whom the Lord loves, He chastens. If you're without chastening, you're illegitimate and not sons. God disciplines His own children. He doesn't discipline those who belong to someone else. He disciplines His own children. And so when you do fail, you're going to feel some displeasure from heaven. If you do not feel that displeasure from heaven, you need to be alarmed about the condition of your soul, according to Hebrews 12. Then letter D. There is a delight in God's law. You love the Word of God. Romans chapter 7, verse 22 says, For I, Paul said, I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, according to the spiritual man that the Holy Spirit is affected, is what Paul's talking about here. And so there is a love for the Word of God. There is a desire to be in Bible study and to hear the Word preached and to immerse oneself in the Word on a daily basis. Now, the truth is you may struggle with that, I understand that. Consistency and discipline is a daily struggle for everyone that is still breathing. But the truth is, is that there is a desire, there is a delight in the Word of God. Letter E, encouragement in the right path. Uh, Paul said, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Those who belong to God have had times of leadership from the Holy Spirit in the right direction in making decisions. In other words, it's really clear when the Holy Spirit is in someone's life, and so we evaluate and judge ourselves. I remember when Jonathan was born, it was really obvious he was in our house. It was. The house sounded different. There were giggles, and there was laughter. In fact... A few months before Jonathan was born, when I would stand and preach, he would go into action in utero. I want to be delicate, but he would uh, engage in what Michelle called uh, embryonic uh, gymnastics. That's what he would do. And then he was born, and when he was in the worship center, when I was preaching, he would look my way, and then after a few months, I went to preach uh, and speak uh, to some Baptist men and Jonathan was in the back of the crowd with his mother and the moment I started speaking he started heckling me. That's the first and last time that's ever happened. Please don't get any ideas but um, Michelle had to carry him out. So, So the home sounded different because Jonathan was there. It looked different. There were toys and boxes of diapers and bottles just a tremendous, overwhelming amount, especially of toys. Of course, you know his favorite toy after a few months was a cardboard box. But uh, it looked different. And then it felt different because there was a little boy to hold. And then it sure did smell different. (laughs) And worst of all, when Jonathan came into our home, worst of all, I was no longer the most popular male in the house. I was supplanted by a six-pound, two-ounce little boy, and I've not regained my position since. (laughs) Now, that was our first of four children, and 20 months later, we had a girl. Well, you'll get that later, but that meant a lot of changes as well. In other words, whenever Whenever infants come to live into a home, it's different. And beloved, if a six-pound, two-ounce baby can change a home, the presence of the third member of the Godhead in your life will change you, and it's obvious that he's there. And And so even asking the question, does the Spirit live in me, should really be unnecessary because his presence is so clear in the life of a genuine child of God. And that's why I worry about some people, and I'm concerned. The Bible says in Acts 2.39 that when we repent and believe the gospel, God gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. And if he gave Christ at the cross, he'll certainly give you the gift of the Holy Spirit and his sealing and empowering and guaranteeing ministry and heart and life. There's a great need because some of us are embarrassed about Jesus. Some of us are afraid to mention his name. And Jesus warns in Mark 8.38 that he who is ashamed of me and my gospel, when I return with my holy angels, of him I will be ashamed. Some of us are not the possession of God, but possessed of self and self-rule. And the solution is a new heart. The new heart empowered and changed by the Holy Spirit. The way that we get that is to reject anything keeping us from Jesus Christ. And God invites you to do that today. Jesus, in fact, said, unless you repent, you shall likewise perish, to react vehemently against the sin that keeps us from Jesus Christ, from the self that keeps us from Jesus Christ, and to cast ourselves in faith upon his strong and saving arm. Now, trust what he did at the cross and the resurrection. You'll have the opportunity to do that this morning. And we pray, Father, that friends would do that today, that they would open their heart and life and say yes to Jesus Christ and bow everything before him. I pray, O oh God, that the Holy Spirit would do that prosecutorial work in hearts and lives today and magnify Christ so that friends couldn't stand themselves unless they surrendered to Him? Would you make His his work strong and vibrant and intense today that Jesus may be glorified? In just a moment, we're going to sing a song. And as we sing this song, we're going to invite you to come. We'll have staff here who will help meet your spiritual needs. Simply what you do is you step out from where you are. You meet a staff member here on the front. Share your spiritual need, and we'll help take care of that with you today. There's no magic to walking down the aisle at all. We simply want to offer practical help today for you to do serious business with the exalted and glorified Lord Jesus Christ. And he wants you to come. He commands to come now and to say yes to him now. Why don't you come in just a moment? Others of you need to become part of this church here at Beach Haven. We want you to come. God may be calling you, some of you, to ministry or to missionary service. Why don't you come? You may have some other need. You come. You feel free to come. But we will be glad to help you meet your need. Would you quickly stand with me, please? I'm going to finish my prayer. We'll ask you to come. Father, we pray that you would work for Jesus' sake now, that the words of our mouth, the meditation of our heart will be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and redeemer.